You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero. Welcome to this Future Net Zero podcast. Today I'm talking about networks. I'm talking about the ENA, the Energy Networks Association, what they do, the implications of the networks in terms of decarbonizing, and also a little bit about COP. My guest today is Randolph Brazer. Randolph, how are you? Very good, thanks, Sumit. Happy to be here. Uh, do you want to tell people your job type and what you do at the ENA? Yeah, so hi everyone. I am Director of Innovation and Electricity Systems at ENA. And at ENA, we represent all of the gas and electricity networks at both a transmission level and a distribution level in the UK and Ireland. And my role is effectively to work with the networks to help them transition towards net zero, whether that's using innovation, whether it's coming up with strategies to roll out the smart grid, whether it's strategies to roll out low carbon technologies. We basically don't want to be a blocker and we want to be an enabler of net zero. And and we think we're in a good position considering we are at the centre of the energy system. Yeah, I think maybe to explain for, for the listeners, I mean, everyone kind of gets an idea of what suppliers are and they know what the national grid is. They're not too sure, I think, most people about what networks are. Do you mind just spending a couple of moments just talking through what the energy networks are? Because people may even know about sort of, you know, the, the electricity one, but I don't think people think there's a grid, uh, a gas network as well. They kind of just think gas pipes come down. Yeah, no, it's a fair call. In fact, I would say most people I know do not know who their local network is, whether it's gas or electricity. So it's that's, a, true. that's quite true, actually, it's quite fair. <laughs> my my mum is 80, she still thinks it's the London Electricity Board from 1975. <laughs> yeah, my mum is very much in the same uh, space. But no, so, so basically, we uh, represent as networks, we, we are the wires and pipes that deliver either the electricity or the gas from the gen- the big generating plants and increasingly right. small generating part- plants from an electricity perspective, or from the gas terminals and the gas injection points from a gas perspective, we represent those physical wires and pipes as they go through the transmission network, down through the distribution networks and into your homes and businesses. We're, the, we're effectively the physical infrastructure as opposed to the, the generators of, of electricity or gas. So is, is the national grid part of the ENA or is that separate? No, that is part of the ENA. So national grid, they represent the transmission network for both gas and electricity in England and Wales. They are members of ENA, as is the national grid electricity system operator or ESO, which is the overarching system operator. They're also a member of ours. Yeah. And then you've got, I think, uh, I can't remember the last number, how many uh, DNOs, they're called uh, district network operators, is that right? The, the, the local electricity systems? Yeah, DNOs. So there's six DNOs in GB and one in Northern Ireland. And then on the gas side, you've got uh, four in GB and one in Northern Ireland. So in terms of uh, all of these systems, I mean, if we look back at where we were before we start talking fully about net zero, the old days was big power, like you said, oil and gas, fossil fuels, coal, and we built loads of big power stations and we had big pipes and off they went. 
Yeah. I suppose the thing that's changing since probably the introduction of electricity market reform 10 years ago, maybe even before that, is this idea of kind of, you know, more distributed energy. Uh, us starting to have not just big power stations, but lots of little things like wind turbines or yeah. solar farms or houses that have, you know, stuff. So this transition, just give us a recap. Where would you say we're at now? Is it is it sort of, you know, it's just still the very earliest days or, or, or how would you see it right now? Yeah, I think it depends on exactly the part of the energy system you're talking about. So if you're talking about electricity, last year we were at 43% renewables on the grid across the whole year and that That's goes incredible. up to around about 60 percent if you include nuclear power as a low carbon source yeah you know that that's pretty impressive that's well on its way obviously there's still well, a lot more well, to this, go yeah i mean i remember when we when we started in 2010 i think it was it was tiny it was probably about five percent six percent something like that it was really small exactly so that that's ramping up year on year and, and you know expect another up, uplift to that this year so electricity which is sort of historically carbon emissions for energy, you roughly split it into a third, a third, a third between electricity, transport and heat. That's not quite true now because electricity has done so well in yeah. decarbonising, but the electricity part of the, the carbon emissions from energy is going well. On the transport side, I think I saw the other day that we've cracked 600,000 EVs on the road. So that's not actually that much from a sort of total percentage of the car no, population. Yeah. I think it's only 2% or something like that. Yeah, less than that, I think. Even, yeah, but, but it's significant from where it was, again. Indeed. And the month-on-month -month sales are double-digit percentages. And we've obviously got the 2030 target now. So transport, although it's low volume, the uptake rate is high. And then there's heat, which is sort of the big unknown. Heat's probably the most difficult part of the of decarbonising energy. And there's a few options out there. You've got potentially hydrogen, heat pumps, district heat networks. Yeah. And there's no real clear view on what the answer will be for heat. So that's the tricky one. So we've still got quite a long way to go on heat. Yeah, I, th I think that's the thing that I think most people will understand is that, you know, we can see in our lives, electricity has changed a lot, right? We can see LED light bulbs in our houses, in our offices, yeah. you know, people hard driving. I've actually got an electric car. So I'm looking at one now, sitting in my drive, which I've just picked up the last oh, nice. two weeks. So that's that's completely changed things. Very nice. It's quite interesting watching that. And, and driving it is fantastic when you don't see the smoke coming out. So you do start to feel slightly smug, I'll be honest with that. <laughs> but the gas side, you know, I've got a gas boiler I moved into this house only in January and I did talk to my builder, mm -hmm. oh, shall we put in a heat pump? He said, just too expensive. And, and it was a ridiculous amount. It was like kind of 15 grand and the technology yeah. aren't there. I think for the wider space, I think heat's the one that's going to be a real game changer, but also quite yeah. tricky for us as consumers, whether we be businesses or individuals to see that transition, aren't we? Because we're, we're so used to gas. Yeah, I, to I totally agree. It's, it is real tough. Like, one of my favorite memes at the moment, you know, energy memes, a bit nerdy, but basically there's this uh, party. There's a cartoon you're, you're, party. You're with friends now. You're with friends yeah. now, Randolph. You can be as nerdy as you want. <laughs> well, there's this, uh, there's this cartoon party and uh, everyone's sort of like mingling around the edges, speaking to each other. And each of the characters is a, you know, a buzzword from energy. So you've got 
renewables, you've got batteries, you've got EVs, you've got like direct air capture startups and things like that. And then there's this massive elephant in the middle of the room and it's just got heat written on it. And I, I just think it's so accurate. <laughs> and look, let, let's be honest, we, we, we know the government's trying to do a heat strategy, just publish one, there's a lot to go on. Yeah. But, but in terms of, you know, as we, as we take this conversation on, thanks for giving us the background. Would you say that now all the networks, whether they be heat, whether they be gas or electricity, have now got themselves in this pathway towards net zero? Yeah, I, I would say unequivoc unequivocally, yes. All of the gas and electricity networks are driving towards net zero. And it's pretty much front and centre of everything they do. You know, when we're talking about investment or strategies or innovation, whatever it happens to be, it's with an eye on net zero. I was at COP, and I know you were at COP. I described COP as a mix of, of, of two words, really. I thought it was hypocrisy and hope. I thought there's a lot of greenwashing, if I'm honest, and I saw lots of, you know, people saying, oh, yeah, we're carbon neutral and countries pontificating in big stands. But then I met really amazing people trying yep. to make a difference, people from around the world, you know. And I, I, I left with a thing that actually, I know that a lot of people say that it got watered down, but mm -hmm. this is the first time we've had a global agreement to at least phase down fossil fuels. And we made, yeah. you know, you've got to get everyone with it because it, it's, it's like the COVID thing. Unless we're all yeah. vaccinated, well, none of us are vaccinated. What was your take on COP? Yeah, I, I did see your summary and, and I largely agreed with it. I think... For me, I'm a bit of a glass half full kind of guy. You know, I know some of the targets were watered down. Some of them were still further off than people had hoped. Like, you know, India 2070, China 2060, Saudi 2060, et cetera. But I always think to myself, at least we've got a target now. Like we've got a target, you know, we've got these agreements. You can always improve on them. You can always make them stronger. You can always make them legally binding. You can always bring them forward. I mean, just look at, in this country, just look at the, the phase out of diesel vehicles. It was 2040. You know, we started with 2040, yes. but we've now yes. brought it forward to 2030. So there's no reason why we can't do that at the international level. So I, I'm just glad that we've got, you know, we've got the vision, we've got the targets, and we can always improve on them and make them stronger and better. I mean, your, your home country of Australia wasn't too keen on stuff, and we've had ministers there talking about it. And it is kind of one of those big coal producers and all that. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the, the global picture, uh, would you say that you feel that actually, even though all the caveats we've just talked about, I think there is movement globally. Now, I mean, yeah. hey, it's I'll say it's the same planet, whether it's the same sky, whether it's in Australia, whether it's in you know London or, or Delhi, you, you're still seeing the same things. A hundred percent, yeah, and it is really good to see that that global ambition. I mean, obviously, countries like Australia, we wish they had more ambition, and you know, I think they've got the the skills and also the resources to do that. But you know, like I said, at least there's a starting point, I guess. Yeah. So let's move on to the network. So um, there's there's one one member of your uh, group that I know quite well, Basil Skarsgård. <laughs> he runs UK Power Networks, and I think yeah. he was your old boss many times. And I've spoken to Basil many times, and he kind of said, and I assume this is the same for all your networks. There's kind of three bits of it, and I'd like to explore that next, which is kind of we've we've got to as our as a company ourselves, we've got to go down the pathway to net zero. We're mm -hmm. going to help our staff go down the pathway of net zero, helping them with. You know, whether they do carbonize the fleet and things like that. But obviously the most important one is 
we need to facilitate society's transition to net zero. So let's yeah. start with that third one first. For, for us to have it, so here I am with my electric car and, and you know, uh, I've already had the guys around and they fitted the thing and they said, well, you actually it'll draw this much power and all that. And I said, well, is, is my house going to cope with it? And they said, well, it's quite interesting because I live in a 30s house. Loads right. of this housing stock in the UK is quite old. Some of it much older than mine, Victorian, whatever. And it was yeah. built with very different electricity needs when electricity was put in. So where do you see this ability for the networks to adapt to, let's do me, I've got, I now have an electric car, maybe in a couple of years I'll have a heat pump, maybe I want to put a solar panel in, you know, there'll yeah. be more reductions I want to do. All of that's a load, does that mean more digging up, does that mean more kind of carbon footprint? How do you see that picture of transitioning, helping us as a society, as businesses, what networks will do? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, fundamentally, the networks have not been historically designed for these devices. The sort of design factor that we say for the network is assuming that each house is on average one to two kilowatts of electricity. This is from an electricity perspective. However, you probably put in a seven kilowatt EV charge point. I did indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what we're seeing as the average. And heat pumps could be anywhere from two or three kilowatts up to 15 kilowatts, just depending on the type of house that you live in. So you're 100% right that the networks haven't been historically designed for this. However, there is a number of things that we do as networks to ensure that homes and streets are net zero ready, as we say. And some of those solutions are, I guess, what you would call the traditional solutions. So, you know, putting a bigger cable in your street, for example. However, some of them are also facilitating new markets for you to optimize your energy use. So I'll give you an example. What we're doing at the moment is where, where there are pinch points in the network, where, where we've got a capacity problem, we go to the market and say, can someone in this area, in this postcode, help us out and provide us with capacity? And if you can provide us that capacity and it's lower cost than the network solution, we'll pay you to provide that. So what that means for you as a household is if you've got any sort of flexible demand or flexible device in your house, so in your case, it's an EV, but you might have a battery there, you might have yeah. a heat, you might have a heat pump, which has some flexibility. If you've got something that's flexible, you can effectively provide that additional capacity by, to the network by either injecting into the network or just reducing your use. And if you can do that at the right time when we need it, not only will you lower your bills, but you'll earn a new revenue stream because we'll pay you to do it. Yeah, and, and I get all that. This is the, co the concept of the prosumer. And we yeah. know businesses are doing it already. The question yeah. I always have to you is, wasn't the grid built big to small? Is it built to go small to big? So, you know, can, can my wires, in a stupid question, but can they go backwards in a sense? You know, <laughs> can I feed in as well as draw out? And will yeah. that mean new infrastructures, things like that? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the, the physical wire on the street, I mean, it, the wire by itself is relatively dumb. Like, it, it can definitely facilitate uh, your power flow back in the opposite direction. Right. But you're right, right. The, the grid as a whole hasn't been designed for that. And a lot of the systems in the grid and the control systems in the grid in particular weren't designed for that. So that's why yeah. we talk about converting it to a smart grid. Uh, yeah. And that's something that we're very much focusing on with uh, innovation projects and investment. It's ensuring you've got 
the telecommunications, the control systems and the data on the grid to ensure that power can flow in all these different directions. In terms of obviously the, this transition, we see our audience is business. So let's talk about businesses. Uh, many businesses are already yeah. buying clean energy. Uh, the ones that have got capacity and looking yeah. at solar, looking at maybe even wind farms, if they've got land, looking at variety of things. How will you be able to help businesses as, as an industry be ready? Because that's the big thing, isn't it? It's all very well getting that. You, you need to work with the local council, my planning, my funding. It's, it's a real mix. Yeah. And suddenly, uh, you, you know, my network operator says, sorry, mate, can't put your cable in for six weeks or I can't put your transmitter or can't put your energy storage device in. How would you get around these things? What, what is the ENA planning for this sort of, you know, this, this squeeze point that could happen? Yeah, no, really, really good question. And, you know, when you're talking about millions of devices being installed, that, that could absolutely become a pinch point. So our role, I, I sort of see our role at ENA as coordinating this sort of activity across the country. So we're ensuring that people get a consistent and, and I guess, standardised way of working with the networks across the country. So what we're doing, for example, to help with that um, specific example you gave about, you know, a battery or an EV charge point or something, we're digitalizing the connections process. So at the moment, the connections process is relatively manual. You've got to contact the DNO, send in a, a Word document or an Excel sheet. Uh, we're looking to digitalize that process so that someone can connect quicker. And then that'll be consistent across the country and we'll agree SLAs from a networks perspective so that the timelines are very open and visible. The other thing that we're doing that I think is really going to help is we've recently launched a proof of concept for an, what we call a national energy system map. I personally like to think of it more as a Google Earth of energy where you can basically zoom into different parts of the country. You can turn different layers of network data on from both gas and electricity networks. So that'll give those same businesses more visibility of where the network is where the spare capacity is so it can help them with their planning and in the future when we create the enduring solution of this map third parties will be able to layer their data on top as well so it's really going to help with that planning at a local level what about the issue that obviously businesses will find which is that they need to have the flexibility so yes they'll put the stuff in yeah, there'll be the data and they'll they'll want to have markets, you know, other networks ready. I know of a trial down in Cornwall, which was a local energy market. Yeah. You know, the idea that these things will work. People are talking about blockchain and all that. Are you exploring all of this of how basically as we go more local, I might trade my electricity with my neighbour or yeah. there's a factory up the road that might give me some energy that I might need. All of that is, is, is on the cards, isn't it? Uh, 100% it's on the cards. I mean, Already those people can participate in national markets, so the national grid ESO markets. They can increasingly participate in local DNO markets. So this year alone, we had uh, three gigawatts of local flexibility markets where we're basically sort of what I was talking about earlier at a postcode by postcode level. We're saying, you know, we need an extra megawatt here. We need an extra couple of megawatts here. And that, those are markets that people can participate in now. They're very much business as usual markets for the distribution networks now. Uh, and we're increasingly looking at those other third party markets that you talk about, like peer-to-peer -peer trading markets. Data. 
this is the tricky one, right? So obviously, uh, I've now, you know, got a smart meter. I never had it before because I was in a flat before I moved here and I couldn't get one because the way the network's, all these things that you find out anyway. So I've got a smart meter. I've got this app for the, the charger, all of this stuff. Now, that's mm -hmm. all my data, mm -hmm. right? I'm going to give it to you, you know, your members. What are you doing about keeping my data secure? What are you doing about cybersecurity, the threats? Because as the network and the grid becomes smarter, unfortunately, there are people out there who will find ways of hacking it. Yeah. So where is, you know, what are your members doing about cybersecurity and looking at the future where things that were dumb become smart? Yeah. No, it's critical. Cybersecurity is critical. It's it's one of our key focus areas. We have a working group within ENA on that. We work very closely with the relevant government offices on cybersecurity. But I think specifically in terms of smart meters, your smart meter data will, I mean, you, you own the data, obviously. Um, the supplier has access to it. Networks have access to it as well via the smart DCC company. But we can only really access it on an aggregated sort of street level. And when we do access it, we can only access it for a short period of time and for specific cases, like, for example, planning and operating the network uh, yeah. in a very efficient yeah. manner but you know the networks are we're not the most digitalized com companies on earth um, and you know the general rule is that the higher the voltage the better the data and the lower the voltage the worse the data but we do have a lot of experience of dealing with um, data and digital systems particularly at the higher voltages which means we have very robust and strict and secure systems in place to look after whether it's networks data or customer data businesses out there who want to start their transition to net zero and we obviously talk to them all the time yeah. they're looking at funding models they're looking at all of that mm -hmm. what will their relationship with the the dno become as the dnos become what they're now calling dso the yeah. sort of local system operators how do you foresee that and what should businesses be doing can they talk to your members how, how will that all mm -hmm. work yeah, good question. Businesses have historically been no different to customers. Didn't know who the DNO was, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> exactly the sort of same situation. But you're right that as the networks do transition to DSO, you know, they're, they're becoming a lot more front and centre and they're becoming a lot more active. I like to describe it as moving from passive asset owners that just, you know, own these assets in the ground and, and maintain them every now and then to actual active system operators yeah. where they're you know, actively controlling the network on a day-to-day -day basis. But with that comes a lot more interaction, a lot more engagement, Correct. a lot more discussions with customers. So that- and they've, not, you know, and they've not been generally doing that. You see, people have a relationship with their supplier. They don't exactly. have a relationship with the network, do they? No, they, they historically don't, but that's what we're trying to do. All of our networks are open, you know, the doors are open, they facilitate discussions on a highly local level. We're running more and more events, we're getting more and more involved in things like this, which we wouldn't have historically done on a podcast. But equally at ENA, that's what I see as another key role of ENA. We are there to sort of, if you don't even know who your DNO is, you or you have businesses and assets across the country, come and speak to us. You know, we'll, we'll Talk, talk to you about what's happening, point you in the right direction, yeah. make the right connections, tell you about which websites to start with, which apps to download, all that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's really a good point because there are lots of companies who listen to this that are multi-site that might yeah. have generation assets up in the north 
and offices in the southwest or whatever and might want to change you know use their green power because everyone wants to show what they're doing this is yeah. very interesting actually that yes how, how do you coordinate across different patches because we've generally been stuck with our, our local area and who who our um, supplier and who our network is there a hundred percent and you know if you let, let's say you're in you're installing EV charge points at your sites all across the country and you've got one yep. in each of the DNOs, you don't want to have to download six different apps with six right. different processes yeah. to do and it. And have six different lots of people to talk to. Exactly. And, and I think that really is where the where ENA comes in. We, you know, we very much work with all of our members to try and standardize this, make it consistent, make the processes similar get the SLAs the same so that customers get a consistent uh, experience and, and user journey across the whole country. That, that's why we exist ultimately. Uh, before we go, let's talk about a couple of other things. Uh, one is, what are your companies, your members doing about their own transition to net zero? Because let's face it, we see the vans, they're generally diesel vans. They're having to dig up roads. There's uh, generators that chug out while power's cut. All yeah. of your members, must be having to transition themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's a range of different areas that um, where we produce emissions that we're looking to uh, reduce them or remove them entirely. So if you think about, like you said, the, the vans and, and cars and things like that, you know, a lot of them are looking to move towards zero carbon fleets, whether that's, you know, electric vehicles, obviously for cars and, and the lighter vehicles and potentially things like hydrogen or biomethane for the bigger heavy vehicles, because we got quite a few specialist vehicles for building networks. There's then also the sort of losses associated with networks. Yes, so as absolutely. the power comes from the wherever the generator is to your house, there's losses on the network. That now we'll never be able to remove losses entirely. That's that's physics. There will always be some, but we are heavily incentivized and spending a lot of money, innovation money and and looking at a lot of areas to reduce those losses and minimize them ultimately. So that's another another area that we're looking at. And then we're also just looking at the general operations of the networks and, and the types of materials we use, how we, you know, how we go to meetings and things like that. We're, we're very much looking to reduce carbon emissions. In fact, some of, some of our members have committed to net zero by, I believe, 2028. So they've, they've even gone ahead of the game. So I assume they've all set targets for, for when they want to try and... Yeah, we, we don't have one target for all of them at the moment. Um, and, and obviously, you can imagine electricity and gas, it's a different kettle of fish as well. But they've all, they've all at, at the sort of latest committed to net zero by 2050. But we're, you know, we're, we're hopefully, like I said earlier, that's the sort of end target. And if we can bring it forward, brilliant. One other main thing, which is we're entering something called ED2, this new yes. phase yeah. of kind of which Ofgem uh, is is in charge of, basically, so that people understand, it's kind of a, a kind of five year period where Ofgem sets a budget and says, "This is what we think is going to happen, and this is what you, as the networks, will have to do to make sure you're capable." Yeah. This is, you know, uh, you know, people have talked to me and said this is one of the most key next five years for this transition to net zero because yeah. it sets. The benchmark for what's happening. What is your relationship like as as ENA with Ofgem? What do you think this will do this period, and will it be the one where we start to see as consumers this change that we start to see your members much more? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I agree with that. The Rio two period is critical, and 
I think it's fair to say it's the most critical regulatory period to date. There's no doubt about that. But our relationship with Ofgem, I would say, generally speaking, is very good. Um, I think Ofgem have created this regulatory mechanism called RIO, which mm. is basically world leading. I have countries contacting me pretty much every single week looking to understand how networks in the UK, gas and electricity, are so far ahead. We've got so many different projects, innovation projects running. We've got these new markets that we talked about. You know, how are you so far ahead? And it very much is because of that regulatory mechanism and how that regulatory mechanism incentivizes the right behavior. It's very much a performance or output-based regulatory mechanism uh, as opposed to the old types. And that is why it has been so successful. But I also believe that's why we have a really good relationship with Ofgem. Now, there's obviously, um, you know, tension there on different issues at different times, but I think that's very much healthy. On a, on a sort of day-to-day -day working basis, I would say we have a really good relationship with them. To end with our businesses that are listening here, uh, what, what should they do if they're thinking about starting their transition to net, net zero? Should they be talking to you? Are you willing to listen? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. And, and I often hear that, you know, where on earth do I start with all Correct. of this? I've got, I've, got, I've got no idea where to start. Um, <laughs> we get that all the time. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I, I think, you know, to start with, speak to the right people. So my door is definitely always open and ENA's more generally. Uh, the network's doors are also open. There's really good resources on some, some of the government websites now around you know, I, I just worked on one recently with Bayes about, you know, how do I connect or how, how do I get a new low carbon technology and how do I connect yes. it? We created some really simple pages. So speak to the right people, get pointed in the right direction and, and basically start reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm grateful for your time today. And in a word, are you confident that the, the networks they won't be a barrier to us going towards it. I am really confident. I'm, I'm obviously biased, but generally <laughs> speaking, I like. I wouldn't be working here if I didn't believe in it because I'm a really big advocate for you know addressing climate change and supporting net zero. And I, and I really do think that the networks are 100% behind it. It's not lip service. They're generally actually physically delivering. Um, so I, I am very confident, to be honest, Sumit. Excellent. We've ended with hope, not the hypocrisy. I like it. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Randolph, thanks so much for joining us on futurenetzero.com. Uh, thank you very much, Sumit. You have been listening to a promoted podcast from Future Net Zero. Please follow us on social media and subscribe to the website at www.futurenetzero.com. Future Net Zero. Better business, better planet.